Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. <laughs> Thought I was going to forget my name, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> that momentary look on your face. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, and we hope you guys are enjoying this series of, uh, I guess, investing education. And we're going to just keep on rolling we're into rolling through. some of the things that Buffett's done in the past and does a lot now that are not well known in the public, but we should talk about it. Amazing. So I think them. we're, can we just have like a conclusion, conclusatory? Is that a word? Um, paragraph about the end of the checklist series. We are done with checklists. We yes. Are. Yes. I'm leaving aside the topic of my notes for a while. I'm working on through it as I slowly get better here. And at some point we'll come back and we'll talk about my process and see what you think of it. But I think yeah. let's leave checklists for now. Okay. And let's talk about the two extremes of Warren Buffett's um, strategies. We've, we've been in the middle of a strategy in the bullseye for years, and we haven't really talked much about the things that are on the extreme ends of this sort of bell curve of, of uh, investing strategy. Ooh, and, intriguing. Uh, you know, and one end of it is that Warren Buffett is one of the largest, in terms of volume, uh, stock options traders in the world, and very few people are aware of that. And we may have time to get to that today a little bit what that's all about and how you might use that or how you might not use that. And the other end of the extreme is what he did for his initial strategies as he just kind of came out from Columbia University, having studied under Ben Graham and tried to get a job with Graham and failed. Graham wouldn't hire him. Mm -hmm. And then Warren just persisted and got a job. And those initial years, he followed Ben Graham's strategies very closely um, in what Graham called the net-net strategy. Net-net. Did you already know this? Net-net um, thing? I've heard the term. I would not be able... I Basically, I don't really know what it is. I wouldn't be able to explain it or talk about it. But I've heard the term a number of times um, in relation to various investors, not just Buffett. Isn't there another one that really likes net-nets? Or maybe it's just a Graham version, a Graham philosophy. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's interesting. It's an interesting concept that came out of the depression and world war II. He actually developed it in the depression. But when, before you tell me what it is, I just want to yeah. make sure I'm clear. So both sides of the extremes are one side is stock options and the other side is these net nets. Yes. Yeah. I think that's got right. it. Okay. I think that's right. Net nets are super conservative, super, super, super conservative stock investing and options are traditionally thought to be a very risky type yeah, of stock investing. Yeah, so, to the point where you have to get specially approved by your brokerage. To exactly, do. exactly. So let's start with the really conservative one. This goes all the way back into the mid-50s when Buffett came out of Columbia and started on his own. And Graham had devised this idea of investing back in the 1930s 
when he actually got out of the stock market in 1929 before the crash and was liquid and then the market crashed down but of course you don't have this crystal ball and this is this is a really good thing for everybody to keep in mind as we come up on what Ray Dalio thinks is going to be a similar you know it's like it won't rhyme but it's it's in the ballpark of this of the depression like history um, doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes yeah Okay, but it, but it won't exactly rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> I just butchered Mark Twain, I think. <laughs> right. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So I think he's looking for the rhyme here, Dalio is, um, to the 1930s depression where the country went through this kind of cataclysmic dis, uh, uh, devaluation of the U.S. dollar um, and, in order, and ultimately ended up in World War II. So... Um, in anticipation of that possibility, I don't know that he thinks it's likely, but I think he thinks it's a strong possibility, then we should think about what net ed is because net net was what Graham did in the Depression. And hmm. it was very, very successful. Um, essentially, the idea Man, is to laying value... laying down the important info here, Dad. I, oh. This is like exciting. You having fun? Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, I was the basic... not expecting this today. <laughs> Go for it. The basic thing with net net is that you're trying to buy the company just for almost for its cash that's sitting there. You want to actually buy it for a discount to cash. It's almost what net net is. Essentially, you take all of the current assets. That means the cash and the cash equivalents, right? It, you'll see they have some money and some short-term investments that we call cash equivalents. You add that to accounts receivable, but you reduce accounts receivable if you think there's a good chance a lot of it won't get collected. Obviously, so basically cash that's, that's readily available and cash that's readily collectible or right. legitimately collectible. Right. And then you take the inventory, which is in, in, uh, in your assets on the balance sheet, and you reduce that to just what you'd get if you liquidated it. Fire huh. sale. So not so the same as book value dollar. because that encompasses the whole a lot of stuff. value of the business that you yeah. could sell it off for. But well, just it, the it, No, just it doesn't really book value book value is what is an accounting number. It it really should be what you could sell it off for net, but it isn't. There's a lot of in intangibles that are there in the in the assets That's, that you really can't count on. Yeah, I think I'm using the wrong words, but that's what I mean that there's a lot of intangibles in book value. Yeah. that conceivably could be sellable, but in real life usually are not. Yeah, so exactly. Especially if you're under pressure and right. things aren't going well. So you really reduce the assets to just what you're absolutely going to get out of it in a conservative view. If you liquidated everything and you get that number, so let's say it's a hundred dollars and then you subtract all of the liabilities from that. Hmm. Now let's okay. say liabilities are $50. So now you've got $50 left over. That's net net. That's what they call net net. And um, that $50, you want to buy the stock for roughly 80% of that $50. So about $40. So not even for that amount. Not even for that amount. <laughs> Still a discount. That's what, yeah, a discount to the discount. Who? So that's from Graham? You buy that's it? That's from Graham. Okay. Mm -hmm. Net net. And um, there... There are people who pursue a net-net strategy. You can look it up on Google, and there are, I'm sure there's somebody out there that would 
be happy to take you under their wing and teach you net net. I don't know if they're actually the real or not, but it's certainly a very famous uh, strategy for investing. It's just that when Buffett came out and began doing it, very quickly he started to realize that this wasn't the 30s anymore. This was the late 1950s. And it yeah. became really hard to find things where you're basically getting it for free, right? And um, and that's when Charlie Munger came along, right around 1959, 1960, and said, hey, Warren, really, you should be thinking that we'd rather have a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost like Buffett was struggling in between this this Grammian philosophy of trying to buy anything as long as it's cheap and you know you're getting it for really, really cheap, that's a great investment, go ahead and buy it. And yet he couldn't find a lot of stuff like that, so that's a struggle. And then Gra and then um, Munger came around and was like, oh, every all of that? Like, let's not do that. Let's buy things for more. Yeah, <laughs> but make sure they're really good. <laughs> so like right. the exact opposite of what Graham taught him, which because Graham didn't care if it was a good company or not, as long as it was cheap. And Graham bought quite a lot of these things, you guys. When you do a net net thing, you don't buy 10 of these. He, he would buy 200 of these. And, you know, some of them would go down and enough of them would go up as people started to realize the company's not going to fail that he made very, very good money. He was compounding money at 22% through the Depression in World War II. That's just extraordinary. And built up what would today be a multi-billion dollar portfolio. Um, but as you said, Danielle, in the 60s, late 50s and 60s, it wasn't that way at all. Um, in fact, the market was getting more and more overpriced, such that by 1965, the market peaked at about 1,000 on the Dow, and it hmm. didn't go above that for the next 18 years. Wow. It got so high-priced. Wow. So it's just real interesting to know that, that Warren started off with net-net, that it is a viable strategy if, the thing, if everything just really hits the fan. And, um, or if you're in, a, in a, another country where things are hitting the fan. Like, for example, in Turkey right now, there's this huge... Uh, devaluation of the lira, and that is going to make some things incredibly cheap in in Turkey. If you can hmm. take a look at that, maybe you'd be interested in a net net kind of kind of point of view. Or in Argentina, where things are really dicey right now, they're looking at another major devaluation. So, um, yeah, you you look where there's real trouble economically across the board, looking for companies that are likely to survive, and then buying them just super cheap because nobody wants to own stocks. That you're, hmm. you'd be in that environment. If nobody wants to own Argentine stocks or nobody wants to own Turkish stocks, right, then you're going to have a massive sell-off to a point of really stupidity, right, that you can go and buy viable companies for less than essentially the cash on their books. So that's yeah. kind of interesting. I mean, it's because people need the money, obviously. Yeah, it's because people need the money and they're scared. Even the people who don't need the money are looking for something else, right? And this is where, yeah, maybe so. Uh, not to, not to slide into a whole other controversial subject, but this is where gold became the preeminent investment strategy in the 1930s, when people were very afraid of what hmm. was going to happen with the hmm. currency. Of all countries, all of all of the first world countries were in real dire straits. A lot of a lot of problems in the streets, and so gold became very very important. And the United States 
took action on an executive order from FDR. He didn't pass it through Congress. They didn't do anything. He just, executive order, made gold illegal to own in the United States for a, for a citizen to own it. And I'm mentioning that because today the modern equivalent of a gold position might be something like Bitcoin or Ethereum, some sort of, um, not a cryptocurrency per se, but a, an actual uh, blockchain-based crypto. And um, and that, I just think, be, be really careful of, in terms of thinking that because you're putting your money into Bitcoin, it's going to be safe when governments tend to be very aggressive about protecting their currencies. And uh, it could very well be, you know, that other countries follow China's lead and India's lead. They've both made uh, crypto illegal um, as a currency. So other yeah. countries follow that lead. You're going to find yourself in something that's highly volatile, very difficult to, to, to be able to actually benefit from. It's super interesting because the concept behind Bitcoin is a currency free of control by a government. Right. And yet we are seeing controls by governments. <laughs> right. So <laughs> theoretically. Uh, so like bit. the argument is you hold Bitcoin because it's or or any whichever one ends up being, you know, a valuable one in in the far future. Um because it's not gettable because, you know, no bank has to submit your information except that now that everyone's doing it through banks and it's like right. becoming so like mainstream and establishment and standardized and, it's, it's um, really be interesting to see i where really would like an expert to explain to me I, maybe we should try to find somebody to come on and who's a mega well, we're gonna get some substantially different opinions on this thing yeah I can tell you that's that. true that's true um so it'd be, it would um, be fascinating because so many people are are I wouldn't say they're investing. I say they're they're gambling with with Bitcoin because it's yeah. an interesting gamble, right? It's yeah, exactly, exactly. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So anyway, didn't want to get all off on the Bitcoin here, but 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 as you were talking about the different investing strategies, the net yeah. net, and then the way Buffett changed, yep. What came to mind is that it's almost like, and I'm curious your impression on this because you're very committed to the Buffett Rule One method. It's almost like maybe you need a slightly different strategy, not slightly. Maybe you need a different strategy depending on the economic situation slash market situation it in a given time period. What do you think about that? I, I don't know that I would agree. I think that, um, that Graham's Graham's idea was that, um, you, it was difficult to pick winners and therefore you pick a lot of companies based not on whether they're going to be winners in the long run, but whether they have, more value than you paid for them in a desperately terrible scenario. Yeah. So and it, you pick lots of them because a, a lot of them are going to not make yeah. it. Yeah. 
Exactly. So Buffett called this cigar butt investing, right? You're picking up cigar butts off the ground that have a few puffs in them, but they're virtually free. Mm-hmm. And you can see why they, they acted like they're free. You're, you're buying the company for less than the liquidation value of the company. So they're kind of free in that way. Of course, you can't count on the company being liquidated. And that's something really important for you all to understand is that one of the uh, just sort of the rules of these companies is when a company gets in trouble, the management team will have every incentive in the world to burn every dollar they can burn Hmm. to stay in their jobs as long as possible, even to the point of staying in their job through bankruptcy and a restructuring and maybe come out with their jobs on the other side of it, even though there's no longer any investors from the original stock. So don't count on a company. One of the the tough things about net-net is that you sort of almost count on the company actually liquidating, which they will (laughs) never do. They will not liquidate. (laughs) The the people running it have too much of a vested interest in just getting that paycheck until there's no more money. So it's really theoretical that you could actually get your hands on it. And that's well, one of the I big mean, problems some of them it. will sell, you know, and then you'll get some money from They'll that. get bought out by another company for something yeah, more than that, right? Exactly. But that's at the, the end of exit. the day. It's, it's like a VC, it's like an, it's a VC investment. What's your exit? There's only a few exits. Yeah, IPO, sell the company, or it fails and you get nothing. That's an exit too. And if the company's already public, it's already IPO'd. So that one's out. So the only other option is it sells. It could sell to a public company or it could sell to a private group of investors, but it it gets moved to a different management structure. Right. Yeah. Well, Or they recover it. And you hold stock in a lovely company. Yeah, they could recover. And that is not so much what Graham was trying to do. No. But it was very much what Buffett did and would, I believe, continue to do. Because think about it. If you can buy just mediocre companies for, you know, a a discount to their cash, that likely means that really good companies are out there also at a big discount. But the difference is these companies have a future. You're you're talking Hmm. about major companies that are actually doing well. Maybe in the 1930s, you're talking about oil companies and AT&T, right? As America mm. expands through the tele expands the telephone out there, uh, companies that would be building out the infrastructure of America in the forties. Um, gosh, let's see what else. Oh, uh, defense companies, right, coming mm. into coming into World, World War II. So you have companies that were extremely anti fragile through mm. through the Depression. Um, I mean, this is when. I mean, gosh, Coca-Cola was crushing it. Movie companies were crushing it as people were looking for inexpensive entertainment and something that made them feel better. Uh, perfume companies. Yeah. Uh, yeah makeup. These are, small makeup. makeup. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Crushed it through the Depression. So um, using Buffett's strategy, I think it's more likely you could find really good companies than any other time, actually. Um, and that's what my experience was in, in 2009. And the, as the market crashed down, you saw so many good companies. I, I hate to beat a drum on Chipotle, but it, you know we haven't bought that many companies, so it's hard to say it over and over again. I apologize. But 
Chipotle was compounding their growth rate at 20% a year through 2009. I mean, that was like everybody's out there getting crushed. The economy is down. We're in a big recession, almost a freeze up of the financial system. And here's Chipotle just killing it. People coming in to get burritos who would have been going to Olive Garden. Right. So Olive Garden yeah. got smoked. Yeah. Right. That whole that whole group that whole group of companies got wiped and Chipotle just did great. So you you gotta look for companies that are anti fragile for this kind of thing. And if you do, uh, I thought I like them better than net net by far. It's just so much easier. How do you combine those two it sounds like what you're saying is you you don't switch, but maybe you bring a little flavor of the net net in in a certain downturn situation? I think the biggest thing you're bringing over is a, a lot of skepticism about where the bottom is hmm. for this company's stock. And this is, I was going to say, this is where Graham made a ghastly mistake and one that would be very easy to understand. And that is he got out when he saw everything was massively overvalued in 1929, hmm. which was amazing. And then he got back in, in 1930 as the market crashed down. So when the market is down 50%, He's like, this is just the best thing in the world, hmm. but it went down to 90% down. So oh, I didn't know that he started buying down. that early. Yeah. So it was a real lesson on, and that's, I think, generated the idea of net net is that he couldn't trust where the bottom was on good companies because the market sold off everything. That's super interesting. Yeah. Because gosh, I, how it's just impossible to know. It's so it. there it is he impossible is. Impossible to know there where he the is. bottom is. Yeah, he's thinking like, by every standard I've ever lived through, this is excellent yeah. pricing for yeah. good companies that are yeah. going to make it out of this. Yep. And then it just keeps going. Right. And he's. Oh, can you just imagine Ugh, right. the torture of watching that thing go down? Like, there's a certain amount of like. I love how you talk about appreciating when a company continues to go down in price because, okay, yay, I get to buy more. This is why we do tranches so that you don't want to kill yourself when it starts to go down more. And yet you've, you're sitting there, you've spent all your tranche, like all your money's in and all your it just in. keeps going. It's very oh, frustrating. Yeah. I, I mean, the market didn't get back to the 1929 high until 1955. So you're going to think about if you bought stocks it's in 1929, it's, an absolute it's a lifetime, lifetime of zero return unless you were clipping getting dividends, right? That would be, that would, and ultimately in the 1930s, that's what, that was what was left of market interest was people started to realize or started to believe that the only value of a company was the dividends that it produced, hmm. that you couldn't trust any other part of the value. Hmm. Actually, this is really good to talk about this right yeah, now. Yeah, it really is. Obviously, nobody's thinking that way today. It's just all about, you know, somebody's going to pay more for it than I did, which is total speculation, right? Yeah. And uh, and which kind of leads us to the opposite extreme. But wait, can I just say one more thing about that? Oh, sure, sure. Um, what what jumped to mind is that it's, it's a lot like the housing market yes. to buy a house that you're planning as an investment property to rent out. And what a lot of people will say to themselves these days is, oh, you know, the rent's not really going to totally cover the mortgage or it's not totally going to be exactly what I want because like whatever, whatever, reason, reason. 
but it should go up over time and you know in the next 20 years I'll make money from it but that is not necessarily how it's going to be and so the analogy I hear is make sure that the rent is going to sustain you because the actual value the price you could sell it for may not yeah people get caught by the way if you're into real estate investing you might beware that um, I, I watched so many real estate investors get caught in the middle 1980s as interest rates just went up and up and up. I know there were uh, some guys that were the dad of a friend of mine who's a bunch of doctor partners and they owned the building and they decided to sell the building. They sold the building and carried a 16% mortgage back. Jeez. That's where mortgages were on commercial buildings. They carried a 16% mortgage. And then they decided they didn't want the risk of the mortgage, so they factored it. Or I forget what they call it. They sold the mortgage, and there, a market grew up around these high price mortgages or hmm. these high interest rate mortgages to discount them, mm-hmm. and who, the buyers would get even more on it, uh, right? When you when you take a discount into, into effect. So if you let's say you had a hundred thousand dollar mortgage and you were paying sixteen, you were getting sixteen percent. So you're getting uh, $16,000 a year, and then you sell that mortgage for $80,000. Oh, I thought you meant they owed 16%, but you're saying no, they, were they were receiving. receiving. Oh, yeah. okay. And they sold that mortgage. Let's say they discounted it to, what did I just say? Uh, let's see, 16. So for 100,000, 100,000 mortgage, let's say they sold it for 80,000, right? So they're willing to take 80, hmm. and um, the person that bought the mortgage takes on the risk that they may have to take over the property. Mm-hmm. But they're also getting twenty percent, sixteen thousand on eighty grand is twenty percent. So now they're getting a twenty percent return per year. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. I mean, if that starts to come back again, you're going to see me jumping on some mortgages because twenty percent a year compounded is deep. Well, it's not compounded. I got to take the money in and then do something with it, right? You understand the difference? Like I think so, but why don't you tell me just to make sure? Okay, so it, it's an important distinction. If I put my money into, let's say, um, Apple Computer, and they're compounding my money at 20% a year, mm-hmm. they're compounding it every year. They're making 20% on the growing pile. Right? Yeah, so they're and the growing the pile is not ever going down. No, it goes up, 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 It goes up, up and up, up and up. Right? Yeah. And so pretty soon, you know, in three or four years, that pile has doubled my money has doubled inside of Apple and then they keep going another three and a half years, it's doubled again. And another three and a half years, it's doubled again. So, and that is, should be reflected in the stock price, right? But, but what's going on? Or they're going to distribute a massive pile of, of cash at some point or, you know, or they're going to buy back a massive amount of stock. So they're going to get me my capital or they're going to use it to grow one or the other. And it's like phenomenal. And that's compounding. That, that means the money is growing and the growth rate is being applied to last year's growth as well. Yeah, it's growing the, on itself. So the money from itself. last year then grows again with the 20%. But you're saying this is different with the It's different building. when you're receiving money from a bond, uh, from mortgage, a mortgage note. So if these guys bought that note, that $100,000 note, and they paid eighty grand for it, now they're getting $16,000 each year maybe paid out monthly or annually or whatever, but they're getting that 16,000. 
It is not compounding at sixteen thousand. It's not. It's oh, not compounding I see what you're 20% saying. Here. The twenty percent stays on the eighty. It. it doesn't go up every year. It doesn't, the it's not applied the to the same. sixteen thousand. Yeah, yeah. Like you collect that. Now you got to do something with it. And this is actually the problem with dividends. If somebody, if a company is has a choice between paying a dividend or using the money to grow the company, assuming it's a legitimate choice, I would much rather have them grow the company if they can grow the company at a high rate of return, right? Let's say they're, they're doing a 15% return on invested capital. If they will keep that money and grow and continue to grow that at 15%, I would much rather have them do that than give it to me. Now I got to go find a place to put it. So I agree. You know, I mean, we had long talks about that, and I completely agree. Yeah. And I think um, the choices that CEOs, that leaders of companies, that boards make around that is our biggest um, clue, piece of evidence, right. into clue. how they think about that capital coming in and what they can do with it. And. Yep. I mean, I wrote about it in our book and invested about the dividend contract of expectations that putting out a dividend every year creates, but it's not just putting out the dividend. It's an expectation that that dividend's going to grow yeah. every year. And if it doesn't, then something terribly is wrong and people flee the company <laughs> in droves, even though the company's doing just fine and they only just like put out the same as last year. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, as you wrote, you know, it's it's so Crazy. upside down from the way you should think about it, right? You, I mean, you don't you don't want a company that is locked into paying a dividend no matter what, including right. borrowing the money to do so and ignoring possibilities for growth or restructuring their business or or being the right prepared thing. for a pandemic or pandemic right. part two oh. or pandemic part three or whatever we've got coming down the pike here. I mean, look what happened to all these airlines. They were rolling in cash. Yeah. And they just bought back their stock or paid out dividends. And then they Can had you no believe there were airlines doing so well that Warren Buffett bought some of them? <laughs> right. That is insane. And then he got burned. Oh, and my he God. He got super burned. Buffett's like, next time I do that, somebody shoot me. <laughs> yeah. it's. But that's that's... 100% why, 100% biggest clue to the allocation skills of the CEO. And ultimately, that's going to matter a great deal. You watched Jenny Rometty at IBM just have terrible, terrible allocation skills, hmm. putting the money into the wrong things, burning money by buying back stock that ultimately doesn't increase the stock price at all. And hmm. it just, it really was sad. And, and she just made a 10 year hole in IBM's future. Meanwhile, Microsoft comes in with a much smarter CEO. Um, you know, Jenny Rometty's a salesperson, and um, Microsoft brings in a technology guy and just goes, hey, let's take this to the next level. And they did, and they went out and successfully competed with uh, Amazon in the cloud, yeah. which is what IBM's been trying to do and has done it unsuccessfully for 10 Massive years. Massive success. Yeah. Okay, so, so we, need, we need to go. So let's let's okay. talk next time about the other extreme the other extreme of Warren and i Buffett. am loving that we're talking about this because we haven't talked about dividends and stuff for a while very cool all right all right see you next time everybody thanks everybody go play bye bye hi guys thanks for listening to invested if you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes visit our website at investedpodcast.com 
and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And I'm really important. It's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that you're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really hope you enjoyed it.